0: regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you joined us on the program today. Got a good show for you. We're going to be taking a look at one of the 43 amicus briefs filed in support of the plaintiff's. In the case known as New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, formerly known as New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett, uh, this is the case challenging New York's carry laws. The subjective, may-issue carry laws that require applicants to demonstrate some sort of special need uh, before they can receive permission from the government to exercise their right to bear arms. As I mentioned, the 43 amicus briefs that have been filed, I mean, that is a ton perhaps, This case is going to be uh, uh, the the most briefed case in Supreme Court history. And we'll be focusing on uh, several of the briefs. We talked last week with uh, Alan Gottlieb from the Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms about their brief. But um, my friend Kirk Schlichter alerted me to a brief uh, over the weekend. He said, You got to take a look at this. And this is truly extraordinary. Uh, This brief filed by uh, black attorneys of legal aid, the Bronx defenders, Brooklyn Defender Services, as well as a number of public defender offices around the state of New York. Uh, And what these attorneys are arguing is that New York's carry laws are violating their clients' rights, and they lay out in great detail how individuals are being harmed by New York's gun licensing laws. Before they do that, well, actually, let's take a look at their part of the summary of their argument. Uh, The uh, brief begins that the incorporated Second Amendment affords the people, quote, the right to keep and bear arms. Despite the clear text in this court's precedent, New York's licensing regime rights to these attorneys does the opposite. It deprives everyone of that right, only returning it to those select few who manage to first secure a firearm license from the police. For everyone else, possession of a firearm is effectively a violent felony. Punishable by three and a half to 15 years in prison. New York's licensing requirements criminalize the exercise of the fundamental Second Amendment right with rare exceptions. The attorneys go on to say, as a result, each year, we represent hundreds of indigent people who New York criminally charges for exercising the right to keep and bear arms. For our clients, New York's licensing regime renders the Second Amendment a legal fiction. Worse, virtually all Our clients, whom New York prosecutes for exercising their their Second Amendment right, are black or Hispanic. And that's no accident. New York enacted its firearm licensing requirements to criminalize gun ownership by racial and ethnic minorities. That remains the effect of its enforcement by police and prosecutors today. The effects, they say, are brutal. New York police have stopped, questioned, and frisked our clients on the streets. They've invaded our clients' homes with guns drawn, terrifying them, their families and their children. They have forcibly removed our clients from their homes and communities and abandoned them in dirty and violent jails and prisons for days, weeks, months, and years. They've deprived our clients of their jobs, children, livelihood, and ability to live in this country. And they've branded our clients as criminals and violent felons for life. They've done all this only because our clients exercised a constitutional right. Again, this is strong stuff. The um, brief by these public defenders uh, also draws on the history uh, of gun control in New York State, which goes back more than 100 years. Uh, As these uh, attorneys write, New York's firearm licensing requirement originated with the 1911 Sullivan Law. That law made it unlawful to possess any firearm anywhere without a license and gave local police broad discretion to decide who could obtain one. The bill was one of the, quote, early northern controls that was passed in response to post-Reconstruction concerns about organized labor, the huge number of immigrants and race riots in which some blacks defended themselves with firearms, quoting uh, Dave Kopel. It also responded to years of hysteria over violence that the media and the establishment attributed to racial and ethnic minorities, particularly Black people and Italian immigrants. In a 1909 New York Times interview, Police Chief Douglas McKay, who was overseeing the working class men brought up from the New York City, uh, brought up from New York City to build the Catskill Aqueduct, summarized the views of law enforcement at the time. "Quote: Another thing that we considered essential to the safety of the upstate residents is to prevent the workmen." from carrying concealed weapons. That's right. we got to stop the average person. Uh, the chief went on to say, this is a strong habit with both Negroes and Italians. The uh, attorneys write, throughout the 20th century, racial fear continued to drive New York's fire regulation scheme, which consciously excluded people of color in continued violation of the 14th Amendment. This was particularly glaring, they write. In the wake of movements calling for racial equality and black liberation in the 1960s, when New York concurrently implemented increasingly restrictive firearm policies. During the summer of 1967, major firearm retailers such as Sears suspended the sale of firearms, quote, in racially troubled neighborhoods, a policy that then-New York City Mayor John Lindsay attempted to codify into law. 1970s, New York officials focused on the proliferation of Saturday night specials, those uh, cheap handguns that were associated with black communities. The term itself has racist origins that evolved from the racist phrase, mm mm-hmm, uh, inward town Saturday night. Meanwhile, the attorneys write police officers were secretly accepting bribes from prominent business people to help them secure firearms permits. They cite a story from 1975, but that has continued on. In fact, it was just a couple of years ago that the New York City Licensing Department, the NYPD's licensing bureau, was enmeshed in a similar scandal over pay to play. And then these attorneys focus on the some of their clients. So they take this out of the history lesson and they bring it right to current events. They talk about uh, stop and frisk that was put in place in New York City. They talk about the racial disparity of uh, New York's gun control policies. For instance, in 2020, they say, while black people made up 18% of New York's population, they accounted for 78% of these states' felony gun possession cases. Non-Latino white people who make up about 70% of New York's population account for only 7% of such prosecutions. Black defendants also more likely to have monetary bail set as opposed to release on their own recognizance. They write, when looking at at only New York penal law, which alleges only possession of a loaded firearm, 80% of people in New York who are arraigned are black, while 5% are non-Hispanic white. According to NYPD arrest data in 2020, 96% of arrests for gun possession in New York City were black or Latinos. And this percentage, they say, has been above 90% for more than 13 consecutive years. That's, you know, again, those numbers are staggering. But we know that the racist roots of gun control linger on today, and that's clearly evident with the uh, uh, statistics brought by these uh, public defenders. They mention several cases that they have dealt with specifically, starting with the case of a woman named Jasmine Phillips, who's from Texas, who lawfully possessed a firearm in the state of Texas, but was arrested for unlicensed possession of a firearm while she was visiting family in New York. Jasmine Phillips is a combat-decorated military veteran, served in Iraq, never been convicted of a crime. Uh, After she and her husband separated, her husband moved to New York and have their kids spend some time with their dad, Miss Phillips, and her children drove to New York City. Miss Phillips had her firearm with her. The attorneys write, When Miss Phillips was parked in her car in New York, police officers surrounded the vehicle. One officer knocked on the passenger side window. Another opened the driver's side door, put her in a chokehold, dragged her out of the car, threw her on the pavement, flipped her over, and handcuffed her. She heard officers search the car and find her pistol. The prosecution later justified these acts because of a tip. She said the arrest was traumatizing. Being separated from my two baby boys who were three and four years old broke my heart. After she was arrested, she was held at the precinct and then the courthouse without food, water, a phone call, or even access to a bathroom. After hours and hours of pre-arraignment detention and processing, she finally saw a judge, like virtually everyone else, accused of possessing a farm without a license. She was charged with a violent felony. And the judge said, high monetary bail. She said, I felt completely hopeless. I thought about my kids, racked with guilt, worry about what they were going through. Were they scared, confused? I was taken away from them so suddenly, she says, I was crushed. I also thought about my job and the home that I was running, realizing that I was going to lose both. She said, I felt broken. Well, Jasmine Phillips was actually one of the quote-unquote lucky ones. Uh, Her case was uh, diverted. And eventually dismissed, but, as these attorneys say, the case had lasting effects. A Texas judge ruled against her in a child custody case because of her felony arrest. And the effects of the case did not stop there. Um, Four years after Phillips was arrested, her local sheriff got a call to do a welfare check. She wasn't at home at the time, but her landlord was. Police reported inaccurate uh, information uh, about this uh, dismissed case. The landlord then terminated her lease. And to this day, Philip says that her younger son continues to suffer severe separation anxiety. They also talk about the case of a guy named Mr. Benjamin Prosser, who they describe as a young man who graduated from high school with honors, distinguished by a national foundation, and because of New York's carry licensing requirement, he is now a, quote, violent felon, even though he didn't commit any act of violence. The only crime that he was accused of was simply carrying A firearm without a license. As the attorneys ride at the police precinct after his arrest, Mr. Prosser confessed to possessing the gun for self-defense. He'd repeatedly been the victim of violent stranger assaults and robberies on the street. When he started a job that required that he travel two hours for work every day, he decided to carry a firearm. He didn't possess it with any intent to engage in violence, but his experiences taught him that he needed a weapon to be safe. And by the way, he wasn't going to get a license. Even if he had the money, the hundreds of dollars, non-refundable, to apply for a license, he wasn't going to get one. Because in New York City, living in a bad neighborhood and having a you know two-hour long commute each way is not seen as a justifiable reason to exercise a constitutionally protected right. So Mr. Prosser was out of luck. And Mr. Prosser was arrested. The Prosecution charged him with a violent felony. After lengthy plea negotiations, the prosecution offered him a deal to a probation sentence on a plea to a lesser charge, but it was still a violent felony because he had previously been the victim of violence. So they recognized, look, we know you were just defending yourself, but we're still going to prosecute you. We'll give you this plea deal. You don't go to prison, but you're now a violent felon in the eyes of the law. You're no longer allowed to serve on a jury. You are no longer allowed to legally own a firearm. Even if you leave the state of New York, you are federally prohibited now from owning a firearm. Mr. Prosser, because he didn't want to go to prison, ended up accepting that offer. The attorneys uh, lay out several other cases. Their own clients, who were non-violent felons, but who now have violent felony records because of the inanity and the unconstitutionality of New York's gun control laws. They conclude their brief by writing, the Second Amendment is a right held by all the people. However, we regularly see New York charging those who exercise their Second Amendment rights with a violent felony offense. Our experience illustrates that New York effectively deprives its people of the Second Amendment right by requiring that they successfully obtain a license from the police before exercising it. As a result, we urge this court to enforce the Second Amendment by issuing a clear and durable rule The court should hold that the petitioner's denials violated the Second Amendment because New York cannot condition Second Amendment rights on a person first obtaining a license. I got to tell you again, this is a really, really powerful brief on the part of these public defenders who have seen firsthand the problems that New York's gun control laws create In fact, they write about this. They say, in asking that the court resolve the question presented in this way, we're mindful that the right to keep and bear arms has, quote, controversial public safety implications, citing the McDonald case. As surely as water is wet, as where there is smoke, there is fire. There are those who will take for granted that criminalizing gun possession is the antidote to killing. It is tempting, they write, if the only tool that you have is a hammer to treat everything as if it were a nail. But they say what these stories in our experience illustrate is that New York's licensing requirements, which cause criminal penalties for unlicensed possession themselves, have controversial public safety implications. It is not safe to be approached by police on suspicion that you possess a gun without a license. It is not safe to have a search warrant executed on your home. It is not safe to be caged pre-trial at Rikers Island. It is not safe. To lose your job. It is not safe to lose your children. It is not safe to be sentenced to prison. And it is not safe to be forever branded as a criminal or worse, a violent felon. And some, they say, New York's licensing requirements are not safe. And those licensing requirements also violate the Constitution. They allow New York to deny Second Amendment rights to thousands of people and to instead police and criminalize them for exercising those rights. Such a policy is the type that, quote, the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes off the table, citing the Supreme Court's decision in Heller versus D.C. The attorneys say the court must not stand idly by while New York denies its people the right to keep in their arms, quote, particularly when their very lives may depend on it. It must create a rule that will, in fact, protect the Second Amendment rights of all the people. Achieving that goal requires that the court answer the question presented by holding for the petitioners and reasoning that New York's licensing regime violates the right to keep and bear arms. I I wish I could give that a standing ovation. I mean, honestly, that was an incredible brief. It hits New York directly. It is not, again, about hypothetical situations. There are real people who have been sentenced to prison for exercising their right to bear arms, for doing something that is not a crime in most states, but is considered a violent felony in New York. Simply possessing a farm without a license that the average person cannot obtain. And they're violent felons for the rest of their life because of it. That is the very definition of an injustice. And I got to tell you, this this brief, uh, again, by uh, let me give you the full name here. The brief of the Black Attorneys of Legal Aid, the Bronx Defenders, Brooklyn Defender Services, et al. Uh, And again, part of that, et al., are a number of public defender offices around the state of New York as well. Let me see if I can, uh, let's see, the Franklin County Public Defender, the Monroe County Public Defender, the St. Lawrence uh, Lawrence Public Defender's Office, uh, the Oneida County Public Defender's Office, the Ontario County Public Defender's Office, uh, also the Ontario County Office of the Conflict Defender, The uh, Wayne County Public Defender, I mean, again, these are the the attorneys who deal firsthand uh, with New York's screwy gun control laws. So to have them speak out and say, listen, our client's rights are being violated here. And they're not being violated on a, you know, case-by-case basis. They're being violated every day because New York's laws are unconstitutional. That is a powerful message. I mean, we've heard from some great Second Amendment scholars and attorneys who've written these uh, amicus briefs. The author of this brief, i got to say, I've, I've, I've never heard of this attorney before. Um, Avinash Nitin Samarth of the uh, Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem. is the uh, primary author of this brief. An incredible, an incredible job and an incredible argument that absolutely decimates The arguments by the state of New York that, well, we need these laws to keep people safe. These laws are creating criminals. These laws are putting people in prison. They are creating violent felons out of individuals who are simply carrying a firearm for self-defense. And again, I don't know that I've seen the amicus brief that puts the issue as starkly as this one does. So kudos uh, to the black attorneys of legal aid, the Bronx Defenders, the Brooklyn Defender Services, and all of the public defenders, as well as uh, Avinash, Needham Samarth, for writing this incredible brief. You can find this brief and more uh, at the Supreme Court's website. We're going to be highlighting more briefs between over the course of the summer, I think. Uh, you know, we've got a, a couple of months before the Supreme Court's back gets back in session. But uh, this one, well worth a read uh, in its entirety. All right, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen stories, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report as well. We've been talking about New York. Let's turn our attention to Chicago for just a minute. Here's the uh, headline from the Chicago Sun-Times. Straw producer gets eight months in federal prison in case study that follows Merrick Garland's uh, visit. Yeah, you you know, the Biden administration trying to talk tough on crime. Say, we're going after straw purchasers, We're going after rogue gun dealers. We're going to nail them to the wall. I got to tell you, eight months, not much time, considering that uh, straw purchasers are actually eligible for a, a much longer prison sentence, five years in a uh, federal penitentiary. But the Chicago Sun-Times says a days after Attorney General Mary Garland came to Chicago to promote a new program to combat gun violence, in part by targeting so-called straw purchasers, a federal judge handed down an eight-month prison sentence, what the feds called a case study in the problem. But prosecutors say Eric Blackman bought a 9 millimeter Smith & Wesson pistol for a minor in August of 2019 from a licensed firearms dealer in Oak Forest, Illinois. said he later told investigators they just figured what's the worst that could happen. Moron. But the uh, feds say that gun was ultimately linked to a December 22, 2019 mass shooting on the south side that injured 13 people. Of the 31 cartridge casings found in the home where the shooting happened, 13 of them came from the gun that black men had purchased. Uh, before U.S. District Judge Robert Gettleman handed down the eight-month sentence to Blackman on Monday. Uh, this would be uh, last Monday. Blackman told the judge, quote, it was basically a mistake that was made that I wish I could really take uh, take back. Blackman's defense attorney, Michael Leonard, tried to underscore his client's lack of criminal history and said that Blackman is, quote, not the guy we're looking for to solve the gun problem. Well, no, actually he is. According to the Biden administration, we got to stop guys like Blackman from buying guns for people who are not legally allowed to own them. But eight months. That's it? Really? The um, judge noted that Blackman's lack of criminal history helped him put the gun in the hands of someone who shouldn't have it, noted that Blackman didn't seem to commit his crime for money. He also said that guns, though, have destroyed so many lives in our city. Stray bullets are killing children almost every week in this community. And he rejected a request from Blackman's attorney for probation. By the way, the um, person that Blackman purchased the gun for was caught with it a little more than a week after that shooting. When officers saw him walking with what appeared to be a gun handle sticking out of his right pocket. Uh, the Fed say the firearm is loaded, had an obliterated serial number. That person, by the way, who was the original or who was the intended purchaser of that straw purchase, not accused of participating in the shooting, neither was Blackman. Uh Merrick Garland says that uh, you know, lying on a uh, a form and buying a gun for somebody else is Quote, uh, well, it says, quote, we do not regard this as a minor matter. We regard this as a major matter. Well, if that's the case, then why is the Department of Justice okay with an eight-month sentence for what could be and what maybe what should be five years behind bars? Again, I think the focus from the administration publicly is on efforts like this, Privately, the administration is still way more focused on legal gun owners like you and I. Today's Armed citizen story, also from the windy city of Chicago. Chicago Sun-Times reporting a 16-year-old boy shot and arrested uh, during a confrontation in the Douglas neighborhood. This was early Sunday morning, just after midnight. Apparently, the 16-year-old walked up towards a 41-year-old man, gun in hand, tried to rob the 41-year-old. The 41-year-old is a concealed carry holder, also armed. He drew his pistol fired a shot at the uh, 16-year-old, struck him in the arm. The uh, teen took off running, but police took him into custody a short time later, transported him to a local hospital. Looks like he's going to be all right. Already out and is uh, booked now. Given his age, I'm not sure that the criminal justice system is actually going to do anything with this attempted robber. Uh, But as Chicago's violence continues to spiral out of control, it is no surprise And I think it's actually good news that more Chicagoans are actually deciding to protect themselves with a firearm, knowing uh, damn well that the uh, mayor isn't going to protect them. All right, and finally today, our uh, good deed of the day. A uh, baby pinned under a car saved by Good Samaritans and law enforcement officers. This was in Yonkers, New York, uh, on Friday. Police Department responded to a scene of a car accident after a drunk driver With a suspended license, ran into a 36 year old woman who was holding her eight month old daughter. Mom and baby were sent through the front glass window of the Dimitri Barber Shop in Yonkers, where the car came to a stop. These off duty officers were next door eating breakfast when they saw what happened. Officer Rocco Fusco and multiple bystanders actually lifted the car inside the body shop as he yelled, Grab the baby to his partner, Officer Paul Samoyedni. The officer then reached under the car for the struggling child before emerging with her, yelling, I got it, I got the baby. Uh, Mom suffered a sustained fracture. The baby suffered a skull fracture, as well as third-degree burns to her back. Police arrested the driver, 43-year-old David Ponkarak, charged him with driving while intoxicated, vehicular assault in the second degree, and aggravated unlicensed operation in the second degree. Hopefully, mom and baby are going to recover, uh, and they've got the opportunity to do so thanks to the uh, quick thinking and the fast actions of Officer Rocco Fusco, uh, Paul Samoyetti, and uh, passerby who saw what was happening. And again, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing as well. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of and Arms Camp and Company. want to thank you for being a part of the program, as always. Hope you had a a great weekend. Glad that you're kicking off the week with us. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Bearing Arms. All you got to do is go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Become a VIP member. You can use the promo code GUNS and get 25% off of your membership. That's going to give you exclusive analysis, commentary, and more, but you're also going to be supporting work like this each and every day. And we certainly do appreciate all of your support. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information. In fact, we've got a... uh, a good friend of the show coming on, Rick Hector. He's got a big project up in Detroit. We're going to talk about it. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.